0: Hi, and welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom hartman Institute North America. We're recording today on Tuesday, August 4th, 2020, and I'm really excited and very honored to be joined today by really one of America's leading journalists, Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, a long writing history of The New Yorker, The Forward, many other publications, the principal continuous interviewer of President Obama. And uh, and we're going to talk today a lot about America, American authoritarianism, the political moment that we're in, partisanship, and all of that. Jeff, thanks so much for for making time today to to be part of the podcast.
1: Oh, I'll do anything for Hartman. Well, that's pretty good. I'm going to record. Not anything. Let me just,
0: uh, (laughs) yeah. Let me just edit that. Not anything. (laughs) Okay, great. I'll do a lot for Hartman. It's too late. We already cut that and, and we're going to use that as, <laughs> as a tagline. Uh, so I hope you're doing okay and, and weathering this pandemic okay. I suppose that the journalism business where you can actually sit and do some writing, it's not so bad to be at home. We all have our challenges. Yeah. Thanks for being here. So I, I want to start by talking with you about the American idea. Uh, mm-hmm. Really, I've noticed uh, since you've taken over at the Atlantic uh, and especially over the last few years. So I guess, you know, coinciding with the Trump presidency you have been commissioning a lot of writing and doing a lot of writing yourself about the American idea. Yeah. And, um, and you've argued in the Atlantic that the American idea is under threat um, based on a whole variety of forces. So before we even get to those threats, um, what is that American idea? Um, and, and then we can talk about what it means to be dismantled. I didn't realize there was going to be homework. Um, the, uh, so
1: it's interesting. I have to step all the way back to the founding of the Atlantic to explain why this is a complicated question. So the Atlantic was founded in 1857 with twin and superficially contradictory impulses or mandates. Um, it was an anti-slavery magazine at its founding. It was abolitionist. Although the abolitionists who founded it were on the spectrum of gradualists to you know, John Brown supporters, essentially. So that was that was a presuppose that everybody involved in the Atlantic was fighting against slavery. The second part of the mission was, and this is in their founding manifesto, again, from 1857, um, was to be the conveyor or the illuminator of the American idea. But what's so interesting about that is that in the founding manifesto, um, the the people who started the magazine, this includes Ralph Waldo Emerson, Longfellow, Oliver Wendell, Lump, Sr., Harriet Beecher Stowe, um, kind of a greatest hits list of uh, mid-19th century intellectuals, transcendentalists, and so on, and um, they didn't define what the American idea is. And, and, and so I think, uh, editors of the Atlantic, subsequent editors have all sort of had to grapple with what the meaning of that is. And I think the meaning of it is, uh, well, I think there's two meanings. The first is that because there's no one definition of what the American idea is, it means that we as a magazine have to be open to many different streams of thought, uh, which is, harder than it seems these days, as you well know, that, that we have to bring a, a kind of humility to our mission and understand that we don't possess all of the answers. And so that um, a little bit of a tussle sometimes, a little bit of a debate is good a, a, a for the readers. And ultimately we're trying to serve the readers. And so the readers see different understanding and different streams of thought, then, it's, then there's some utility um, to the Atlantic. So that's the first challenge. The second challenge is that, and this again might sound contradictory, we also have a basic understanding of what the American idea means, um, and there's a shared assumption that it means obviously some of the values that are encapsulated in the founding documents of the country, the they're, they're equal opportunity, uh, equal access to the law. Here's a Jewish concept for you that's also a very American concept. you know. I'm better than no man, but no man is better than me. Sort of, sort of approach that is sort of a basic American civil religion. I mean, there's a, there's a million ways of, of of answering this question. It's extraordinarily hard. Books, old books have been written, obviously, about about what this means. But I think um, uh, a commitment to truth, mm-hmm. and again, in 1857, it, it it wasn't that different in some ways than it is right now. Which is to say that there was a faction in America that was arguing something that was facially fantastical, right? That, that um, they were arguing that uh, slavery was moral and the people who started the Atlantic obviously had a different thought about that and excluded that argument from, from this debate, right? Um, Part of the, and tell me when I'm digressing into my digressions and I'll stop, but part of the challenge of, of running a big tent journalism enterprise or a big big tent ideas enterprise um, is, is recognizing that it's still a tent Uh, and the nature of a tent means that there's some things that have to be outside the tent and it's always trying to figure out, okay, what, what is, what is excluded from this big tent debate about the meaning uh, and purpose uh, of America? Again, going back to the founding, the goal or the twin goals I think for any Atlantic editor would be to understand what is outside the norm outside civil discourse. You know, people always ask, will you publish anything? And it's like there's literally thousands of ideas that we wouldn't publish. It's to figure out what those things are that need to be excluded because they run in contradiction to what we all generally understand to be the meaning and purpose of America and of democracy and of progress and truth and honor and all the rest and equality. but it 's also to figure out how do you host a debate that, with any luck, refines the American idea and makes America a better place. We believe maybe overly earnestly, but we believe that it's possible and and justifiable for the Atlantic to try to be a place that helps America understand itself that helps refine what its purpose is in the world, and that it 's possible to do that through journalism and adhering to journalistic norms. That was the short, uncomplicated version of a more complicated problem that we confront.
0: Yeah, I want to get back to the question a little later on about pluralism and diversity. There's something, by the way, very Jewish running through your whole description of the Atlantic in that. Well, you know, I don't know if you know this, but I'm Jewish. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, But in other words, that whole notion of like, well, here's the founding documents and we're the inheritors of these founding documents and our work is to be interpreters of that founding idea and to be as inclusive as possible with boundaries. So I want to, I will unpack that in a moment, but yeah, um, yeah. well, by the way, by the way, by the way, just, just to unpack it in a moment,
1: but I just, before I forget, I I think if you're, if you're at all familiar with the Jewish tradition of disputation leading to refinement, leading to deeper understanding, um, then you're very comfortable in the framework that I've described, right? That, that it's persuasion rather than coercion. Or inquiry rather than dogma is uh, maybe you're maybe you're right. Maybe maybe there is a kind of Jewish intellectual curiosity that that matches theological curiosity. that matches the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Yeah.
0: And I don't know whether in describing that we're describing a very particular type of American Judaism also which lines up with, Could be. you know, because it lines up with how American yeah. Jews came to thrive in America in the 20th century. There's a lot, there's a yeah. lot that's there. I, before I get to that, I, I do want to ask you about nonpartisanship or pre-partisanship, right? An abolitionist publication was, may have been nonpartisan in that sense, but it was, but it clearly had to take partisan stances. And I've tried to argue in a few yeah. places that there's a, a difference between the categories of the moral, the political, and the partisan. That they obviously are related to right. each other, but they 're supposed to be on a spectrum and they 're not supposed to be collapsed and um, and and the problem right now in America is that those things are so frequently collapsed, so your partisan opponents once I construct my partisan opponents as being immoral i can 't live in any sort of political community together with them whereas we know we can live in community right. together with people on other sides of a, of the partisan aisle until we decide that they 're moral sociopaths so what is it what does it look like to hold that ground? where you don't wanna concede that the Atlantic is a, you you don't want it to be a Democratic Party organ. You want it to be- No, it can't. I mean, literally literally
1: in the founding manifesto, it says the Atlantic is of no party or clique. Now, no one is gonna confuse the Atlantic in its its most recent manifestation for being, let's say a pro-Trump magazine. Um, And in fact, in the previous election, we endorsed Hillary Clinton. There's only been three endorsements in the history of the Atlantic, Abraham Lincoln in 1860, uh, Lyndon Johnson in 1964 and Hillary Clinton in 2016. The reason we did that, we would not have done it had Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz, whoever, uh, had been the nominee. But we felt that Donald Trump was, I guess, outside the tent to to keep with this keep with this image. And um, I mean, to answer your question directly, it's not the easiest thing in the world to explain to people that. Yeah, you're going to be offended by our magazine. And in fact, if you're not offended by our magazine, then we must be doing something wrong because I don't want to be a monoculture. Um, I don't want I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, per se. I'm talking now from a sort of a editing perspective. There are many, many magazines and websites on the left that you know what you're going to get right? And you're going to get comforted by them. If you're a left-leaning person, you're not going to get challenged by them. And the right has the same thing. I don't want to be that because A, it's not in our tradition to be that. B, it's not interesting to be that from my perspective. Um, And C, it's a disservice because I want to expose our more conservative readers to Ibram X. Kendi, who writes for us as one of our writers. Um, And I want to expose our left-leaning thinkers to um, you know, a David Frum or a Pete Wayner or, you know, Caitlin Flanagan or, or so on. People, these are all heterodoxical people by their nature. That's what makes them interesting. But I want people to be able to coexist in that space. And I want to model that to some degree for other organizations that, you know, it is possible. Like you don't have to, you don't actually have to agree with it. People always ask me, how could you publish that? You can't agree with that. And I said, it's not the metric. If I published pieces that, that I agreed with, I'd publish three things a week. I mean, you know me. I, I don't like very much. But it's not about whether I agree with it or disagree with it. It's whether it's the best possible version of the argument the writer is trying to make. That's what I think the mission is. Um, I don't know if this answers your question, so you want to give it a shot? Yeah.
0: Where do you think the pressure against that heterodoxy in, in the American public conversation is coming from? Cause you're, I, am with you and I know a lot of people who are with you and readers of the Atlantic or, um, consumers of media who can, who can pick up on a lot of different ideas. And yet there's a prevailing kind of thing in the air right now that no, you know, there's this uh, battle against heterodoxy. What, what, where do you think it's coming from? And, and is it really a threat to the project that you're doing? Even non-religious people are religious. And what I mean, what I mean by
1: that is that I always feel when people, come to me and demand that I not publish X or Y or Z, there's almost a religious purity impulse that is manifesting itself in a secular way. Um, But it's about the pure versus the impure. I I, I suppose there's, there's no, there's no one cause of this. I I have to imagine that on the left there's fear, fear of authoritarianism. One of the critiques, I'll give you one example. One of the critiques of the people who are arguing that there is a left-wing cancel culture um, and her writing about what's happening inside liberal and left institutions, this purification process—to go back to the religious metaphor—one of the things they say, and, and this has this has power. This argument is, you know, there's a there's a sociopath, there's a malignant narcissist in the White House who is undoing America in a lot of ways, and I believe that to be true. I mean, I'm, I haven't hid my my views about that. I don't associate it necessarily even with Republicanism. I associate it with the Republican Party as it exists, but not with Republicanism. Um, but, but the argument is, like, the fascists are on the move, and you're worried about, you know, infighting at the National Book Critics Circle, you know, awards. I get it. I do think it's worth keeping a careful eye on this very human and universal impulse to cast people out of the tent, you know, and again, Jewish tradition is filled with this. So it's not, this is not a foreign conversation in this context, but no, I, I do actually believe it has something to do with the, I'm going to get into dangerous water here, but do the, the absence of religion in some people's lives. When politics becomes their religion, it becomes totalizing in a kind of way Um We've done a lot of things in our society to to sort ourselves, according to ideology. We've done a lot of things to sort ourselves, obviously by race. um, And by that, I mean that white people have done a lot of work to make sure that they don't have to be in proximity to people. They don't want to be near black and brown people, mainly. We've sorted and we've sorted and we've sorted to the point where e pluribus unum, you know, is is an idea um, that's... uh, just not honored anymore and that it's not a, it's not a positive value. It is interesting because as I'm as I'm talking about this, I do realize that the um, the echo can be heard in in the Jewish discourse as well.
0: Yeah, I, the insight of politics becomes American religion is I think very uh, powerful one it echoes with some of the research we've been doing here at Hartman for the last couple of years and the, the philosopher Avishai Margalit talks about when you're in the realm of compromise and you think and your terms are economic, it's very easy to make compromise right. but when you're in the realm of the holy you can't tolerate compromise over the holy without compromising the holy and so if the center of gravity of a community becomes politics right. and that's what they attribute to holiness then you can't compromise around politics but let me let me let me let me also we, be practical about this yeah. and, and journalistic and analytical
1: and say that that the reason we are the way we are now um has a lot to do With This is going to sound overly reductionist, but I don't think it's actually that reductionist. It has a lot to do with decisions made by Newt Gingrich and people like Newt Gingrich uh, in the 80s and 90s to turn politics into a kind of totalizing warfare. I mean, it used to be, I mean, I live in Washington, I cover politics. Um, It used to be that compromise was a positive value in American politics and in democracy generally. It has to be, it's prerequisite. Not everybody can get what they want. If one person gets everything that he or she wants, it's called the dictatorship. But, but compromise became a um, dirty concept. And um, that was a decision made more on, I think, one side of the fence than the other. Although conservatives would say that the treatment of Bork, you know, in his Supreme Court nomination process was by the left, by the liberals, was a, you know, also a triggering event. But anyway, I just wanted to like not I don't want to get too um, ethereal about it and 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 not say that it's rooted in decisions made
0: by specific people at specific times that actually altered the course of the river. Right. I, I agree. And there's something about the difference between post-Cold War America, which makes m- makes room for the possibility of a certain type of pluralism as a component of American democracy and, and what happens in the 90s. That that shifts that, but I do hear a resistance, and I hear it even at Hartman. You know, we're we're like a we love pluralism. We talk about it all the time. It's like one of the pillars of the institute. And I hear greater resistance inside the Hartman Institute that says, "Wait a second! If the other team has thrown out the rules of the game, why am I sticking with pluralism and civility as the tools to combat it?" Right? If someone is a
1: schmuck to you, that doesn't mean you have a right to go be a schmuck to someone else. I mean, it's not. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's
0: just the question is, do you want to win elections or not?
1: Do you want to lose your soul in the process? I mean, you, yeah, I mean, you know this argument. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, Israel can fight like Hezbollah. I mean, just to put it into the context that a lot of your listeners probably would understand. You could do that. I'm not obviously talking about Israel honors, purity of arms, more in the breach. But, but um I say that as someone who a long time ago was in uh, that army. I've never, I've never been attracted to that idea because it just leads, it, 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 it leads everybody into the pigsty, and there's no escaping once everybody goes down
0: there. But I get your point. But here's the more serious version of that argument. The more serious version of that argument says that pluralism itself is rooted in a kind of comfort. That it is a safe yeah. liberalism. That it is a bourgeois liberalism. Uh, Berlin says this about himself in the mid '90s. He says, "I know that this vision." of, um, restraining the passions and restraining fanaticism and pluralism as a tool for building a society. He says, I know it's not the flag under which idealistic young men and women wish to march. It's too tame. It's too bourgeois. And so the part of the argument what's well, the march for compromise. Right. But like how does in a moment, for instance, now in an American moment where there's a, a new, you know, if there, if there is right now a new civil rights movement taking place in America, how does the push towards heterodoxy to use your language or or pluralism or multiplicity of views actually engage with questions that are of pronounced moral clarity. Like what's right. the what is the state right. what is the heterodox stance to a new abolitionism?
1: Well well the reason step back for a minute and 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 let's talk about free speech because that's where yeah. the reason that you protect speech viewed as reprehensible by the majority of the community is because one day your speech will be judged reprehensible by the majority of the community. And so the gallows that you build will one day be used to hang you. And so it's just easier and safer for everyone to just allow all views to flourish. I think, I mean, I take, I mean, I take the ACLU view on Skokie. And once I realized that I took, I took that view on Skokie, I realized that, okay, I think I'm pretty much a free speech absolutist, but I understand that there are many people in marginalized communities who don't have access to channels of Disseminated, widely disseminated speech. Who feel like that's another sort of way that elites protect themselves. Certainly, the the call for restraint and and civility protects people who have something to lose in a society. I get that argument too, but I do I do believe just as the, using that extending that gallows metaphor, it's like if you create conditions in which you can be punished for your thoughts or your speech for other people. You have built a weapon that could be seized and used against you. That's what I never understand about these. These um, Princeton is having one of these battles right now um, over academic freedom. Uh, we have an interesting piece up on the website by Connor Friedersdorf today about it. And it, it's those who would those who would um, prohibit people from studying certain Uh, subjects, because they fear that it can move into racism, will one day have to deal with the fact that they've created, if they actually do create it, created a weapon that could be used against them. Um, So, I mean, that's my baseline, my baseline view. I'll give you also a specifically Jewish answer to your question, which is that um, societies that are restrained, that honor divergent views, that protect unpopular speech, And unpopular groups, and that value compromise. These are societies where Jews tend to not get murdered. It's the marchers, people who march under the banner of a utopian reality on, or or seek a utopian reality on Earth. Those are the people who tend to be dangerous to to Jews historically. And so, in my own, I don't want to say my own theology because it sounds pretentious, but in my own understanding. Of the world, compromise a level of acceptance that not everybody is like me, and a willingness to protect their right not to be like me and not to think like me, actually is protective uh, in, in a kind of way. Not only protective of civilization and our and, and certain norms of nonviolent civilized behavior, but actually protective of the Jewish community, which is always persecuted by extremes. Does that make
0: any sense? So, yeah, it does. And and I guess what it would mean is, in, in practice, that in the same way that the founders of the Atlantic in 1857 believe that what America needs in order to be part of the abolition process is a magazine like the Atlantic, the same argument could be made about, you know, it's not just the preservation of the American idea, it's actually bringing about an America in which there is racial justice needs a similar expression right. of the Atlantic in 2020. Right, right.
1: And let me let me just let me
0: just preempt
1: a, cr- a criticism that we would get or I would get from a pro-Trump person who would say you don't publish anything that's pro-Trump, so you're not interested in this true pluralism that you're talking about. Forty percent, thirty-five percent of the country supports him, and you won't publish anything. My answer to that is that we're not in the resistance. We made a very conscious decision not to align ourselves with the quote-unquote resistance. I would publish a pro-Trump piece except that it has to pass through fact-checking, and that's been the difficulty. Like, it actually has to be tethered to a set of observable facts. And um, that's the problem we've had repeatedly. And that also places us, that, 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 that places those pieces and those ideas outside what I would call the American norm, or, or standards of enlightened truth. I'm not getting at your race question because um, I want to understand it better. But, um, you know, I just wanted to, to make that point just so people are clear on that. Like you, you, there are a lot of competing demands on an article before it goes into the Atlantic. Obviously, sometimes we get it wrong even after we try to assess all of these needs or possible flaws. But anyway, I'd go back to the race thing if you want
0: uh, let me ask you about the Jews, right? Um, the Jews are in a weird place right now around the very trends that you're talking about, because the... Jews, Jews are always, always in a weird place. You know I that. know, I know. But like your, your description of these are societies that are ultimately safer for Jews, that observation is at least not borne out by the behaviors that Jews are expressing right now, where... What you described, I agree with you as an American Jew, that authoritarianism, autocracy, suppression of truth, all of that stuff is bad for America and it's bad for the Jewish experience in America. And yet, you know, uh, probably half of world Jewry, if you count American, um, the American Jews who are Trump supporters in America uh, and Israelis who are part of the consensus that is electing increasingly authoritarian governments are actually playing out a very different hypothesis mm-hmm. about what Jews like where where are we lined up? Um, where do Jews line up? I'm curious what you make of that. Like because it it feels to me like a very different answer. You and I mm-hmm. are basically giving an American answer to the Jewish problem of the late 19th century. This is the kind of society we need to make Jews safe in the world. And half of world Jewry is basically saying no. Actually, we prefer we prefer just being on the side of the authoritarian's rather than um, fighting well, well, against it. The, well, the the challenge is, the challenge is what you do with
1: power. Jews are no better or worse than anybody else when it comes to the temptations of power. When you have power, you have a deep temptation to use it in ways that are not, um, healthy or Jewish. I mean, I, 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 think of myself, I mean, we all think of ourselves in a way as being sensible and that the people to the left of us are crazy and the people to the right of us are crazy. But I think I have a, a pretty sensible view that having Power for the Jews is better than not having power. I mean, we're unpopular when we have power, we're unpopular when we don't have power. So you might as well have power. Um, We're not our power, but we should not rest easy with our power. And that's the temptation. I mean, you know, of the many appalling things that I've observed about Israeli politics, I think one of them that sticks in my mind the most is the idea that an Orban in Hungary or other leaders of um you know uh quasi-fascist european parties are the natural allies of the jewish state that's scary because that's and by the way you know it makes a certain amount of tactical sense right israel is a powerful state now um other powerful states want to be supportive of it who are we to say no right that's the argument i just don't find it very jewish It's like, and the line, the line that I would want Israel to walk, and obviously I say this as a person who's not living under the threat of Hezbollah rockets, living in Washington D.C. right now, Um, so I'll do humility on that. But the line that I would want Israel to walk is to accept power, learn to deal with power, try to deal with it the way. Jewish sources would have you deal with it. I remember Sharansky, Natan Sharansky, once said he was actually critiquing the occupation or settlements. I guess you know I come from a country, Russia, that is very naturally an imperialist power, an occupier. They're they're good at it. Jews aren't good at this. I thought it was one of the more sensible things that that he said. He was recognizing something that's 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 true, and I, I think that look, when I go. When we used to have live events in the world, when I would go to the APAC convention in downtown Washington, twelve fifteen thousand 15,000 people exhibiting sort of a, a celebration of raw power in a way that any lobbying group would celebrate its raw power. I just felt it very, I felt it to be like a bit un-Jewish in a kind of way. Like you can have power and be thoughtful about it. And you could have power and recognize that powerlessness is the usual state of the Jews and that the corollary to, you know, treat the stranger well because you were a stranger once. There, there are many corollaries to that that can govern, govern behavior.
0: You know, you published a piece this week that I really liked by my friend and colleague Jim Leffler on the Judeo-Christian idea. And I think um, he alludes to this, but I think the other answer to that question, Jeff, is that American Jews finally have access to being part of that Judeo-Christian story that enables like a different triangulation where if we're not the if we're not the significant other of the society that's being rejected, somebody else is. And that's Muslims. And that lines up very nicely with the Jewish state in the Middle East, which also can can think of its relationship to power as an insider now, as opposed to simply being an outsider where there's another common enemy. Right. And but I, the, I great, it's just, the great
1: challenge for Jews in the, in the post-Holocaust era is, is how we manage power. I mean, there's a million challenges. I don't want to be mono causal or whatever. But I think that the, the grappling with power is is is, the, is one of the hardest things. And the Judeo Christian issue is interesting because there's never such a thing. Every Judeo Christian is kind of absurd if you understand <laughs> you know, Christianity. Christianity. <laughs> Christianity. Yeah, nothing but to two-party point on it. But it's like, oh, so this is Christianity, total rejection of the mother religion? Is that. Exactly. Is now co opted. I don't know. Don't get me started.
0: Judeo Christian is is Christianity that's nice to Jews, but it's not not to to construct as an ideology. What's that that expression? Philo Semites or anti Semites who like Jews. Exactly. Um, That's the corollary. Yeah. And I think it goes back to something we were saying earlier. I think that whole story of um, the Israeli embrace of Trump um and the ethos that he represents is one kind of response to what you and I were describing earlier as the kind of American Jewishness that's rooted in understanding America as a new type of possibility for Jews. And I think it's getting pushed on the other end as well. And that's what we started with, is which is a, a critique from the left, that that American Jewishness that's comfortable and at home with Americanness is just a little bit too bourgeois. It says, like, okay, so I'm a big believer in Walzer. Walter's, and he, again, wrote this in The Atlantic, pluralism and democracy are intertwined ideas. And the argument that comes from the left is, I'm sorry, but your pluralism and your democracy were holding back, they were restraining an argument for racial, economic, and social justice that served you, but essentially demanded of us to keep waiting for... For, okay so for, so make democracy yeah. and pluralism better don't throw them away. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I don't
1: understand. That's what that's yeah. the part that I don't get. Okay. America you know this is why I why am I a patriotic american? I'm a patriotic american obviously because we somehow managed to defeat global fascism in the 40s. That was great. Big big achievement. Stood firm against communist totalitarianism. I'm I'm a I'm a patriot for a million Reasons, but the thing that I think that we should be most proud about America is that it has within it the ability to self correct, right? The story of America is the story of the expansion of rights fitfully with great pain. It's a completely incomplete story, but you know, we have gay marriage in a country that a hundred years ago wouldn't allow women to vote. So we're in a bad moment right now. I mean you remember that that moment in 2008 November when the Obama family walks out from behind that curtain in uh, Grant Park I guess it's Grant Park in Chicago the night he wins and you're looking at the TV and you're going wait a second the president is black like oh we've somehow reached the promised land or that that's the end of the story you know look at this this look at this thing and then we get the reaction and so we're right now in a period of extreme reaction um, and it's really depressing for any number of reasons for people who are progress minded. But, you know, I, I don't think that's the end of the story. The The story keeps moving, moving forward. I don't know how I got into a spiel about patriotism, but here we are. You, you know, I just, um, I, I, I just think that the systems that we've built, I mean, the systems that we built are under real threat from technology among other things, but um, the systems that we've built have the capacity for self- correction and um, they would not have that capacity had we not had a commitment to pluralism and free speech and to democratic ideals and to ideals of restraint because restraint is one of the the great untalked about or under talked about subjects of the age you know um and without restraint there's there's nothing without restraint there's just a desert
0: hi i'm claire supren And if you're listening to Identity Crisis, you're probably curious about the major ideas and debates of the day affecting Jews in America. So I have great news for you. I'm the co-editor with Yehuda Kurtzer of The New Jewish Canon, a book that's out this summer. You can find out more about it at newjewishcanon.com. In this book, we've gathered all Jewish ideas that were expressed between 1980 and 2015. Well, maybe not quite everything, but it contains major texts and debates that were vitally important to the American Jewish community— along with a series of reflective essays by today's thinkers that explain the debates and their importance. Read about it and how to buy it at newjewishcanon.com. Let me ask you three lightning round personal-ish questions. You can answer whichever ones you want. Let me ask you first, which is an unfair question. When I try to like look at my own Americanness and Jewishness, it's hard for me to separate out like my commitments with my father as a, as an American public servant, my grandfather as a Purple Heart recipient on the battle, the Battle of Metz in, in Belgium in World War II. There's something about my story as being an American Jewish story that therefore envisions, like, I'm a, uh, my Jewishness is shaped by that. I, I, I don't like asking people, like, how much do your commitments, uh, politically or professionally emanate from your Jewishness? It kind of feels unfair, but I am curious for you to, to share, like, how much do you think this is, this isn't just the way you the way you're talking, Jeff. It's not just a job, right? Editing the Atlantic. You're actually. It sounds like it. It sounds like it runs deep, and I, I think that's to the credit of you and the publication. But, but I'd love to hear that. Yeah, I mean, like you, I want to do something that has meaning, right? I mean, like
1: m- most of my time at at work is not spent, you know, um, uh, reading the Federalist Papers to myself. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> dealing with budgets and subscription plans and you know assignments and family leave at, yeah whatever i mean a million things yeah, well i mean believe uh, it and, i'm not sitting and, around reading the Talmud either and yeah. pand- pandemic office space <laughs> usage the so the, the question is how does my jewishness
0: inform what i too. And not just not just what you do, but like how you feel about America, how you're talking about America, and how you're leaning the, the Atlantic to this well, commitment look, to America. Look, the,
1: the, 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 one of the unsolved dilemmas of America, obviously, is that for people like you and me, and most Americans who are non-indigenous, non-native Americans, our lives or our families' lives, our ancestors' lives got better when they came here. So that informs everything I understand. I mean, I, I saw the, the list of people deported from my grandfather's village in Romania in 1940. A lot of people with his last name, cousins, you know, died on the way to a concentration camp if they, didn't, if, they, you know, if they didn't make it all the way to the concentration camp. So I know what would have happened to that we wouldn't exist, had it not been for the open door of America. I also know that there's one group, one very large group, um, that didn't come here because it wanted to come here. And dealing with that and finding a solution, whether it's through reconciliation and reparation and study and everything else that we have talking about a lot in society, I, I I get it. And that's, that's one of the core tensions, right? And it's like my America is not other people's America. Um, but I do feel that way. And I'm older now. I mean, I get it that people in their 20s are not feeling... But like, gratitude is not a huge concept among some people, at least this is what I see um who are younger than I am um, I and mean, gratitude is a very Jewish concept, obviously, and so you can study the flaws of America and think that Colin Kaepernick has a point and and on, and on and on and on and on, and also be also have a lot of gratitude for what this country is. I guess I don't know I haven't really sort of articulated to myself how I feel I mean it's also it's, you know. I don't know. It's, it's, there's never been an experiment like this in the history of, of humankind. And we're entering a new phase of an experiment, by the way, um, that no one has ever achieved, building a true multicultural democracy. And that's, of course, a cause for worry that it's not going to go right. How does my Jewishness affect the way, I, the way I think about the world? I mean, I think there are many things said about the Jews. There's a great statement, by the way. I don't know if you realize that, but many things have been said about the Jews. Um, Good and the, bad. Good and bad. Yeah, I was mostly thinking about the bad, but, but there is something very curious about Jewish people in their desire for systems change and in, in ah, whatever cultural reason this, this is, this is caused by, there's just this, and now I'm really just reassociating. So I apologize if this comes up in a completely inarticulate way, but, um, it, you know, we, we, you, you're taught somehow through your Jewishness that you should be dissatisfied with the way the world is and that you should be trying to fix it. And this is why that power discussion is so interesting, right? Because people in power are comfortable and Jews should never be comfortable. It's exhausting not to be comfortable. It's just totally exhausting, but also it's like the world should be better than it is. And, and um, I think a lot of Jews, believe that for cultural, religious, historical reasons. And people get very involved in, in change movements. Um, journalism is part of it. You know, journalism is a change movement in a lot of ways. I mean, journalism is also attractive to a lot of Jews, I think, because um, it appeals to an outsider mentality. You know, I'm looking in at something. I'm studying something. I'm not in that thing. I always think that's one of the reasons that um, Jews have been attracted to journalism
0: in America. Yeah. And also, I think it's a truth business. I think Jews are attracted to a truth business also.
1: Yeah, but let's not praise ourselves too much. I mean, Stephen Miller and journalism. Not Cooker. That, that's always correct. Yeah. 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 No, no, no. You're right. 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 It can go. It could it could go in, in really dangerous, weird directions. Let's, let's face it. I mean, that's one of the things we've learned about America in the last four years is that it's not exceptional. Now I'm going to go back on my patriotism spiel and and sort of counter it by saying that I thought that we were immune to the kinds of illiberal forces that have afflicted Europe, European civilization, periodically, to the detriment of the Jews, obviously. And now I just think America's no more or less immune to these trends than any other country in the world. And Israel, of all things, this is what this is. This is why an ahistorical Israel is a kind of a sad thing. It's like, no, you can't. Yeah, you might get Hungary's vote in the in the Security Council, in the UN Security Council, but at what cost to your soul?
0: Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? This is, yeah, yeah. Page, I mean, I it's, mean page, it's a separate. Paging yeah. Hannah rent. This is her major. Yeah, her major lesson. All right. So, last question for you, Jeff, and and you've been generous with your time, and I appreciate it. Which is. Uh, you know, partly in response to your comments that for Jews, our, our religion shouldn't be politics. And I think you believe that about America also. But also, even if you want to just plug something in the magazine, what do you want people to read? What What do you want people to read right now? You should read Ann
1: Applebaum's cover story from last month. Um, I think it's last month on complicity because her she's a great scholar of, of, of Stalinism, communism and Nazism, too. And, you know, when we started talking about that piece, I really thought that. The, the the interesting population are, are are those who are complicit but what anne discovered is that complicity is the norm and dissent is not the norm in human behavior you should read that um, you should obviously read ed young's new cover story on the pandemic and how we how the virus beat america um because uh, going back to another theme it's like how did we get um how did we get uh how did we get to this place you know you think about um Think about where we were four or five years ago and how did we get
0: here? It's kind of astonishing to read. Yeah, there's so much more for us to talk about, certainly about the business, but I really appreciate that you gave us your time. Thanks to, thanks to all of you for listening to our show and special thanks to my guest this week, Jeffrey Goldberg. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced and edited this week by Devon City Kalman. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman with music provided by SoCal. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We'd love to know what you think about the show. You can also write to us at identitycrisis at You can subscribe to our show in the Apple podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week and thanks so much for listening.